So we get to chapter 10. Now, chapter 10 is another one that's really boring. Lots of names, just skip right over it. Okay, but the main idea here is that God is going to explain where all the nations come from. So he gives you the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And he tells you where they all scatter to. Now remember, this is not where all the nations of the world come from. These are all the nations that Israel is going to encounter in their lifetime in the First Testament and Second Testament where they come from. God is not interested in world history. Um, God is interested in what affects Israel. By the way, this map is up on my website underneath the maps and charts link. And it's also in the notes handout that I gave you. God is going to explain that Ham is going to mostly create the descendants of Egypt and Canaan. And this is very important because the two greatest enemies, the two greatest bad influence on Israel, all throughout the First Testament are going to come from Egypt and Canaan. And so it's very interesting that the greatest threat for them being enslaved in Egypt, and Egypt is really jacked up when you get into their writings, and then the total depravity that they're going to experience in Canaan, which they're going to be so influenced by the Canaanites. When we get to 1 Kings, God is going to say, Israel became worse than the Canaanites. So this is incredible filth, incredible evil. And so God has explained, this is why in Deuteronomy, God is going to command you to never, ever, ever go back to Egypt. And then this is also why he's going to say you must get rid of the Canaanites. Because the Egyptians are not as bad as the Canaanites, but bad enough that you should never go back. But the Canaanites are bad enough that they have to be dealt with. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to chapter 15. Then he deals with Japheth. Japheth is going to largely settle what we know as Greece and Italy and who knows how much further because God is not interested in that at that point. Because they, the further never shows up on the map in the Bible anywhere. Um, and then all of what we know as modern day going into China and Russia and that kind of stuff. Now these people aren't going to be such an influence until we really get into the exiles. So in 722 when the Assyrians sack Israel and 586 when the Babylonians sack Israel. And then... Um, and this is more in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and all that kind of stuff. And then the Second Testament. Obviously, with the Roman Empire, these nations play a great influence. But in the First Testament, they don't really truly show up in the scene, except for a few passages where the Assyrians and Babylonians came from. But even they are mostly Mesopotamia. Then we get to Shem. Shem is the chosen line. He's the one that God is going to take us from Noah to Shem, who will then take us to Abraham. Remember, God's not interested in everybody's genealogy. He's only interested in getting us from Adam to Noah, then Noah to Abraham, and then Abraham to David or Judah, and then so forth and so forth until we get to Christ. But these guys don't really settle land. Shem's descendants become nomadic people. They become people who just basically wander across the earth and just are sojourners, vagabonds, nomads, whatever you want to call them. And this is very significant because it's Shem's son, eventually, Abraham, that will be chosen to become the father of God's new nation. Now, once again, God's continuing this anti-nation theme. Notice that God does not pick his chosen son, 
because Abraham will be, so to speak, adopted. From the nations, he picks them from the nomads, the people who have not built cities, the people who have not established nations, the people who will not become like the Tower of Babel. He takes them from the countryside, from the family, where they have not become corrupted by becoming cram-packed and together and easily influenced. And so you keep seeing this theme that God calls us not to be a part of the nations. It's not until the Second Testament that for the first time ever that God will call us to go into the nations. And notice that the first time that God is ever going to have a positive thing about Egypt is when Herod tries to kill Jesus and Jesus will flee to Egypt for safety. That's the first time ever Egypt becomes something positive. Why? Because Christ is a redeemer. And Christ is going even to these people, the cursed Hamanites. And he is able to go to them. And the idea is that he has come for all people, to redeem all people. And it's not until he dies on the cross and gives us the Holy Spirit that we can then say, I can go live in the city and I can go live in the nations. But at the same time, pay attention to the First Testament and heed the warning. Just because we're called to go into the city does not mean that we're safe in the city and the nations because we're still sinners, we can still be corrupted, and we desperately need the body of Christ. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. And so this is the idea that's going to be developed, and it becomes even more powerful as we get into the Tower of Babel. Now these genealogies, notice a lot of them are names of nations. So this genealogy is even more, less interested and tracing how do we get from this person, this person, this person. And now it's just more interested in this person, this person, this person, they produce these nations. And sometimes when it lists all the nations out, there's sometimes personal names there, and sometimes there's nations' names. And so they're very mixed together, and God's showing this is not about genealogies right here. This is about where these nations come from. So these, this genealogy serves two major purposes. One, to explain to you where Abraham is coming from, Shem. To explain to you that Abraham is a man without belonging, a man without a nation, and therefore it is even more significant that God is choosing the man that does not belong anywhere, which is a constant theme throughout the Bible, that God goes to the people who have less of a place where they feel like they belong than the people who feel like they already know where they are. So that's the main point. The second main point is explain where the Canaanites live. Because then he's going to get more detail, and he's going to list off all the subgroups of the Canaanites. And this is the, we don't get all the teeny subgroups of these larger nations, but we do the Canaanites. Why? Because this tells Israel exactly where Canaan is, and who is considered Canaanite, so they know who to destroy. This becomes their, for lack of a better phrase, their hit list, okay, without being like immoral corrupt. I mean, Israel is not going to enjoy this, nor is God, but this becomes the list of who do they know they're supposed to, to determine should be wiped out. So these are the two major purposes of this genealogy in chapter 10. Any questions? Notice that when we get to chapter 10, we come to the end of each of the three sons, and we're told at the end of verse 5 that from these coastlands the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his own language 
according to their families and their nations. Verse 20. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands and their nations. And then we get to the end of verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations. And then over verse 31, according to their languages. Three times we're told that these people, these three sons, have scattered into multiple languages and multiple nations. So we know that chapter 9 ends with one language because there's only one family. That'd be really awkward if they all spoke different languages. <laughs> then we know that chapter 10 ends with multiple languages. But then when we get to chapter 11, it says the whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. And then we end chapter 11, and they all speak different languages. So wait a minute, chapter 9, one language, chapter 10, multiple languages, chapter 11, one language, and then chapter 11, the end, multiple languages again. What's going on? Chapter 10 chronologically comes after chapter 11. That's the point. And we know this. We've watched movies where we're given this scene, and then all of a sudden it says two weeks earlier, and the rest of the movie kind of builds up to how did we get to that. Okay, when you're watching Mission Impossible 3, and um, Ethan Hunt is sitting in the chair, and they got a gun to his head, and they're like, tell us where the rabbit's foot is. Tell us where the rabbit's foot is, we're going to kill you. And they, the screen goes black, and you think they shoot his wife. Okay, to get rid of it. And you're like, that's incredibly like nerve-wracking. Okay? The movie immediately begins with two people tied in a chair, and one guy's about ready to be killed, and they're asking where the rabbit's foot are, and you're like, what the heck is a rabbit's foot? Okay, we know what a rabbit's foot is, but seriously, somebody's not that serious about getting one that they're willing to kill his wife. And actually, by the way, we don't even know who this woman is, not till later. And then it says two weeks earlier, or one month earlier, or whatever. And then you learn about him getting married, and the development, and then all this stuff. And the whole movie builds up to this climax of them in the chair. Why? Because the director usually, in a plot structure, you are introduced to people. There is no problem. The problem is introduced. The problem gradually gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And the tension builds slowly until it hits that point where you're like, there's no hope. And then resolution is introduced. And then you begin to see the resolution. And then you conclude to solve the problem. And you end with happily ever after. Unless you're an Asian film and everybody dies. Okay? Um, <laughs> I love Asian films, but there's a big difference between the East and the West. But with this, the director, he rather than building it, he just shoves you right into the middle of the tension. Your heart rate immediately goes up. You're immediately confused. And then when he goes back to the everything is good, you know everything's not good. And you feel this uneasiness as you watch this tension rise because you know where it's going. It's a way of developing tension very quickly. And even when things are good, you still feel tension. The reality is this. We're used to speaking multiple languages. I mean, multiple languages are very frustrating when you go to foreign countries on vacation, that kind of stuff. But we know that. We, we're ready for that. We, we're used to that. We get our little translator books. We, do all, we, we find people who speak English. We're used to that. That's our world. But how do you confuse somebody like those original people were confused? You switch the order around, and people are like reading this like, what? Wait a minute. One language, multiple language, back to one language, what's going on? And you start to feel this confusion, and you don't understand what's going on. And so it's trying to make you feel what they originally felt so that you feel the tension of speaking multiple languages is not good. This is not a good thing. Now, don't stop listening. 
I'm not saying that speaking multiple languages is a bad thing, but let me develop the story first. Does that make sense? So God reverses. So the idea is that we have all these nations and languages. Now let me tell you how we got there. And then you feel that confusion a little bit, so you feel that tension. 